You're listening to Time in the Word. What is spirituality? Who is spiritual? Is it accomplished by legalistic conformity to the Mosaic Law? What part does the Holy Spirit have? The self. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul explains the nature of spirituality. Verse 16 commands, walk by the Spirit. In the first part of the verse, Paul defines the command, and in the second part, he explains the result, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. A Christian is a creature of two environments. Unlike the fish whose one nature is adaptable to only one habitat, the believer can function within two realms. In verse 17, Paul explains that as Christians, we have two natures and two desires. In verse 18, he provides a solution to the conflict. In verses 19 through 23, Paul discusses the contrast between the works and fruit. Earlier, there was a clash between the flesh and the spirit. Now a contrast is established between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. Galatians chapter 5. We're starting in verse 16. We're going to end in, uh, at the end of the chapter. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He said, walk by the Spirit, all Believers are commanded, and by virtue of the command, the implication is they can do it. Walk by the Spirit, and if you do so, if you obediently follow that command constantly, consistently, regularly, faithfully, then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The challenge, though, is what we find in verse 17. We see the conflict clearly brought out here. And there are three things that we can glean from verse 17. Every Christian, think about it, is a creature of two environments. Clearly what Paul is about to tell us is that the believer can function within two realms. And that's the conflict, at least part of it. Notice that he says in the first part of verse 17, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. We have two natures. Before Adam sinned before Adam fell, he had a perfect human nature with a will dispositioned toward God. We've never experienced that. We are all born sinners. 
we read about Adam and we know what kind of nature he had prior to the fall. But after he sinned, he still had a human nature, but this was not oriented toward God anymore. It was oriented toward self and sin. In his fall, he thus obtained a sin nature. He became a sinful man. And all those who have been born into the human race have inherited both a human nature and a sin nature from our parents. So we have a sin nature, a sinful nature. But at conversion, the sinful man becomes a partaker of the divine nature. What an incredible thought, isn't it? I'm going to hold my spot right here, and I'm going to read you a passage in 2 Peter to prove that very point. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4. By these, giving us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all now share in the divine nature. Peter says a little bit earlier in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 23, he says that the seed of God is now in the believer. Thus the Christian is a human being who has two natures within him. And in this particular passage in, back in Galatians, the titles are given to the sin nature and to the divine nature. The sin nature is called the flesh, and the divine nature is called the spirit. What Adam lost through the fall as a result of his sin, the sinner can regain through redemption. And we know from Scripture that at death, the Christian will once for all get rid of his sin nature, but he will forever remain a human and a child of God. And in the, at the resurrection, he will get a new immortal, incorruptible body that will, but not a new humanity. So we have, first of all, the conflict of two natures. Second of all, we have the conflict of two desires. And notice that in verse 17, the latter part of verse 17, he says that the two natures are diametrically, and I quote, opposed to each other. So think about it. <laughs> You're a Christian with two natures, and those two natures are diametrically opposed to each other. See the, the problem? The conflict, although both work in and through the human nature of the Christian, through his intelligence, through his emotion, through his will, they are exclusive of each other. What do I mean by that? The new divine nature, and this is important because if we misunderstand that, then, then, then we don't really understand the conflict. The new divine nature of which we share was not implanted to either improve or displace the old sin nature, and neither can the sin nature pollute the holy divine nature. They're two separate natures. Every Christian is a spiritual paradox. Why? He's both a sinner and at the same time, listen, a child of God. And notice what the first part of verse 17 says, that, that both natures desire. And that verb connotes an intense desire we, which can either be holy or evil based upon the source, the motivation, and the object. When the flesh desires, you know that it has both an unholy source and an unholy God. It must, by definition. When the flesh desires, it seeks to use the will of man for the wicked thoughts and deeds. And in doing so, notice that it says it is against the presence of the Spirit within the believer. On the other hand, the Spirit desires. This is reality in all of our lives every day. We have this conflict going on. The flesh desires and the spirit, we're told, also desires. 
And the Spirit, what He desires is for the Christian to be yielded to Him. The flesh and the Spirit are enemies in the same sense that God and Satan are foes. They're in conflict with each other. Not with man himself, but with each other. Now, if that's true, if I have two natures and therefore have two desires, and they are opposed to each other, then it leaves us with the problem of perplexity. Imagine the inner struggle and the frustration that it could lead to if one doesn't simply do what Scripture clearly says one must do in order to experience both victory and spirituality in his life. And that is, again, going back to verse uh, 16, walk by the Spirit. The contrast here is between willing and doing. The willing comes out of the human nature, but it is affected by the two natures. So as I look at this passage, this verse, in my mind here lies the dilemma. How can the Christian be holy when he still has a sin nature? That's a natural question to ask. That's a good question to ask. If I am a born-again Christian, and now I partake of the divine nature of Christ... And I now live in a reality in which I have two natures and both are in conflict with each other. They are opposed to each other. They are foes. And they both desire. How am I as a Christian to be holy when I still have a sin nature? Well, before Paul learned the secret of victory, he confessed to the same inner struggle. Let me read you this passage. For I do not understand what I am doing. Now, this is Paul saying this. I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. He's transparent and simply shares with us the same, the reality of his own life. With two natures, both opposing each other. All of us can sympathize with his conclusion in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7 where he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? So the question becomes, or or the question some may ask is, is why is victory so difficult to achieve? Well, when you have a chance, go back to Romans chapter 7 and read that section 15 through 23 and you'll notice, I mean, it'll stick out to you as, as plain as day. When you read that section in Romans, note the constant reference to self. He uses I all the time, proving this. A person cannot just will to overcome the flesh. I, 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 and after every I comes failed. We've all tried it. The will in itself does not provide the ability to do. The power comes only from God. We've got to get that. I am not charged with producing. I am charged with simply yielding, submitting, following. The production comes when I do those things. We must all surrender to his will, who is the one who produces practical righteousness. All right, so we have the conflict. We have the dilemma here. What's the solution? Well, let's look at verse 18. Now, Paul assumes that believers, you know, when I was jotting this, this down, I had to stop and think for a moment because every once in a while Paul writes and in, and in what he says, he, he sort of expresses an assumption. And the question becomes, is he properly assuming this about me? In other words, is my life fit within his assumption? And 
So in, in verse 18, Paul sort of assumes that believers are spirit-directed for the most part. Because notice what he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, so if a believer is being led by the Spirit, then he's not under the constant conscious pressure of legalism. It's when we stop being led by the Spirit that we start becoming religious in the legalistic sense. And we start coming out, we start reaching our own conclusions about what it is that we think might bring honor and glory to God. When in reality, what brings honor and glory to God is to walk by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. Let's go back to the basics. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Don't grieve, don't quench, be filled. Basics. But we, 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 it's almost like we bypass the basics, almost as if assuming that they're inherent the moment of conversion, and we can go now to our PhD bypassing our undergraduate and graduate work. This is a lifelong process. How long do you think it takes? However long you're going to live. If you're still alive, it's still going on. The believer is being led by the Spirit, therefore he no longer finds himself under the pressure of legalism, whether it's imposed by others or whether it's imposed by ourselves. In other words, what Paul is saying, he does what, a natural, what is natural for him to do. What's the natural thing for a Christian to do? To be spiritual, because he's controlled by the Spirit. You see that? Being a mature Christian, one who, whose life, whose words, whose thoughts, whose deeds are constantly and consistently honoring and glorifying God, is one who works diligently at executing these. And by the way, I don't want to mislead you by saying that let's go back to the basics as if once we go back to the basics, we can master them at that given point and then move on. Because the reality is that all of these commands were given are commands that are meant to be followed for the rest of our lives. So though you may graduate to greater things, you can never leave the basics. Because the moment you leave the basics, you're, you, you derail yourself from being conformed to the image of Christ, from being a spiritual person. The Spirit of God cannot perform His sanctifying work while a person is trying to become spiritual through His conformity to law, to rules, to regulations, whatever they might be. That's where you see the tension. The law becomes a flesh thing while the Spirit is opposing it. The Spirit can lead only when a person sees himself set free from the law and placed under grace. The law, in fact, was the instrument through which the human nature manifested its moral weakness. Listen to what Paul wrote. What the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh, like ours, under sin's domain, and as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. The paradox is that the righteousness of the law is achieved by freedom from the law through the dynamic ministry of the Spirit within the believer. You want to fulfill the law? Be free from the law. And the Spirit causes you now to be a law-abiding child of the living God. Now earlier, there was a clash between the flesh and the Spirit. Now in verses 19 through 23, uh, we have a contrast is established between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now I'm not going to spend time speaking extensively about the, the various things listed under the works of the, of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit because time won't allow. I'll let you do that 
in your own time. But in verses 19 through 21, if a believer does not walk in the Spirit, by the Spirit, if the believer is not led by the Spirit, he will. The promise is, is if you walk by the Spirit, what's the outcome? You do not fulfill the desire of the flesh. Well, if that's true, what's the opposite truth? If I do not walk by the Spirit, by definition, I will do what? Fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so, so you know, what's true on the one hand is also true on the other hand. The fulfillment is also called here, you know, the desire of the flesh, the work of the flesh. Since the Christian has the same sin nature which he possessed in his unsaved life, he's therefore capable of thinking, he's capable of doing the same sins if he's not yielded to the indwelling Holy Spirit. The beauty, though, is that when I became a Christian, when I was justified and redeemed and reconciled when the Spirit of God was given to me and I'm now become a partaker of the divine nature for the first time in my life I can actually not do what my flesh desires me to do that was never true I just did what came natural to me as a sinful man as a man with a sinful nature but now because I possess another nature for the first time ever, I can actually choose to do something other that, than what came naturally to me as a sinful man or a man with a sinful nature. So when that occurs, when he does or commits or thinks the sins that were characteristic of him before his conversion, the scripture tells us in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 3 that that individual becomes, in a sense, a carnal believer, one who is controlled by the flesh and walking as an unsaved man. That becomes true as a, as a matter of life, meaning if the anomaly is not that he does that, but he repents and is restored. If he does that consistently, then the question becomes, examine yourselves to determine whether or not you're even in the faith. A Christian will never persist in sin. The Spirit will not allow that. So if there's persistence, we got another problem. We have listed here 16 works of the flesh that are manifest, both to God and to man. They cannot be hidden. They are more, of course, but they were sufficient to describe the outward expression of the sinful flesh. And they seem to be divided in four major categories. The first category has to do with sexual sins. Three are mentioned. Sexual immorality, which refers to premarital or extramarital sexual intercourse. It can be committed by both the married and the unmarried. In that sense, we think of it as adultery. And Jesus extended the sin from its activity to its very attitude when he said this, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How do I overcome that? Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. And in, in the sexual immorality, as we think of it in a sense of fornication, that's kind of a general word used for any sexual sin. It is used typically of, of maybe prostitution when connected with adultery. It, is, it embraces normally the sensual sins of the unmarried. And it is from that word that we get our English word pornography, a dangerous threat to all. Then we have moral impurity. Moral impurity is typically marked by a filthy mind. I make a statement like that and I think about what I just said. Filthy mind. Nobody, none of you see my mind. 
why God does. We have to be intentional of our obedience to the simple commands God gives us in order to, in this case, our minds remain pure. When I say a filthy mind, I mean a, a mind full of sensually suggestive thoughts or even humor. A morally impure person reads illicit sex, even into the most wholesome situations, just brings them in. A morally impure person is one who who's marked by perverted fantasies. It is expressed through perhaps pornographic literature or movies. An epidemic, folks, even in the church. Then it talks about promiscuity. Promiscuity is such moral wantonness that it even offends public decency. In many situations, it can include both homosexuality, lesbianism, and other forms. It contains, as Romans 13 and 2 Corinthians 12 says, lewdness. So those are the sexual sins, verse 19. In verse, the first part of verse 20, we see religious sins. There are two-sided. Idolatry. Idolatry was widespread in the first century. It involved the worship of pagan deities through idols. And since it was mentioned right after the sexual sins, it could also include the practice of having illicit sexual relationships with the temple priests or priestesses. It speaks of sorcery. Well, sorcery embraced astrology, the magical arts, and demonic spiritism. Ooh, alive and well today. The word pharmacy comes from the Greek term. Thus, this could, sin could utilize drugs to create religious trances and hypnosis, which was, by the way, very prominent in the neighboring Ephesus community. And it appears from Revelations 9 and Revelation 18 that sorcery and all that it, it entails will be a, a major sin during the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist will exercise his power. And then we have in the second part of verse 20, in the first part of verse 21, the attitude sins. Eight such sins are listed here. Hatreds. This contains personal animosities. It is a firm dislike of people rather than things. The word enemy stems from this noun. It is a type of anger that wishes its object to be dead. Hatreds. In that sense, if you read Matthew 5, 22 and 23, it is comparable to mental murder. Strife is marked by rivalry and discord. It means more than just a difference of opinion. It connotes quarrels and wranglings. Jealousy. These are selfish jealousies. The word zeal is the transliteration of the Greek term. Although godly jealousy is good, according to uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, this was a jealousy over sinful objects and sinful motivations. Outbursts of anger. This is a white, hot anger. It involves the explosion of stirred-up emotions. It is uncontrolled rage expressed through outbursts of temper. Selfish ambitions. Those are self-aggrandizing, which shows itself in working to get ahead of others and at their expense. Then he talks about dissensions and factions. I have those together because they describe what happens when people quarrel over issues or personalities causing hurtful divisions. And then envy expresses feelings of ill caused by wrongly desiring to have something that belongs to another. So we have sexual sins, we have religious sins, we have attitude sins, and then he closes the last part, the, continuing in the first part of verse 21, with social sins. And two are given. Drunkenness, which includes both private and public intoxication with alcoholic drink. You can look at Luke 21 and Romans 13. And carousing, which refer to the drunken sexual parties or, or orgies. 
And those often became the integral parts of many of the festivals to the pagan gods. But notice that it's not a complete list, for he says, and anything similar. It's just a sampling. Those are the work of the flesh. And then in the latter part of verse 20, when Paul, you know, Paul had originally preached in Galatia, he warned against the practice of such sins. He says, as I told you before, this statement easily confirmed it easily refuted the very accusation by the Judaizers that the apostles' teaching of grace encouraged the license to sin. Paul says, I told you before. Now through this letter, he was reminding them again. He says, I tell you about these things in advance. Now he strongly warned that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that verb practice, in your translation it may say do. That verb emphasizes a life of habitual practice. That's why I say, if this is the norm, there's another question to answer here. But because we have a sinful nature that has not been eradicated, that has not been removed, we have the ability to commit all of those sins. Plus, so what Paul is saying is, listen, if you don't want to commit those sins or commit them in a decreasing manner, then you're going to have to follow again the simple command, which is what? Walk by the Spirit. See, the more you're consumed with the Lord. The more your mind is directed towards the Lord, towards His work in your life, towards His greatness, towards His purposes, His desires, His will, the less you are giving time to think about what? The things that will lead you to perform the works of the flesh. Starve the flesh by being consumed with the Spirit. And then comes 22 and 23. The connective but, B-U-T, shows the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works have their source in self, whereas fruit originates from the Spirit. Works manifest what a person does, whereas fruit declares what a man is. Works show conduct, but fruit reveals character. In works, the emphasis is on doing, but in fruit, the stress is on being. What happens is we get caught up with the doing, and we become consumed with the doing. And what Paul is saying is, you know, be. The doing is not going to produce what he's going to talk about in this right here. The word fruit is a singular, not plural. The, the, the Spirit produces one fruit, not nine fruits. The fruit, however, has, it has nine qualities. If a believer is walking by the Spirit, is being led by the Spirit, is filled by the Spirit, he will possess all nine of these qualities that make up a single fruit. And the source of the fruit is the Spirit who produces it in and through you, the believer. Christ said to his disciples, I am the vine you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do, what, nothing without me. So the source of fruit bearing, therefore, is not in the Christian, meaning in me as a person, as an individual. He is simply the channel through which Christ by the Spirit can produce himself in me. It's all about the production of himself in me. And the fruit thus is the character of Christ. The Spirit wants the believer to become like Christ. 
and he lists them. It kind of breaks up in three different categories here as well. The works of the Spirit are four, here are three. You have the inward aspects, which have love, joy, peace. You have the outward aspects, which have patience, kindness, goodness, so the inward and the outward. And then you have the upward aspects, which include faith, gentleness, self-control. You don't produce those. The Spirit produces the fruit that displays those nine facets or those nine characteristics. The more you walk by the Spirit, the more you're led by the Spirit, the more all of those nine characteristics will become evident. It's not that He gives you a little more love and a little more less patience. It all just is one fruit. So Paul concluded, against such things there is no law. And the word such refers to the ninefold aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. The Old Testament law never prohibited these expressions of the inner self. The law was given to restrain the works of the flesh. We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. The law never said, thou shalt not love. The law never said, thou shalt not be happy, etc. However, here's the point Paul is making. The law could not supply the power, could not supply the motivation to produce these virtues. They can only become a reality in the believer as he yields himself completely to the Lord. And doing that is your decision, choice to make every time, all the time.